From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking at failed tech products to see what we can learn by studying their demises. My name is Quinn Nelson, and I'm joined by my co-host, the one, the only, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How you doing, Stephen? That was a really nice introduction. <laughs> well, you know, I got to break out the radio voice once in a while. You can't do that on YouTube. <laughs> it's your first introduction as a podcast host. Oh, that's true. Wow, congratulations to me. That was fun. Did I do an okay job? You're the expert. Give me a rating. Come on. That was great. Okay, perfect. Thank you. As discussed previously, I'm bad at intros, so you nailed it. Well, I don't know if that's true at all, but I am excited about today's topic. Yeah. So last episode, we spoke about the Newton, and this episode, we're talking about everyone's favorite music player, the Microsoft Zune. Oh, I love the Zune. Oh, boy. And maybe, well, hold on now. Maybe it's because (laughs) the Zune was more my time, right? So I was around. I was, like, alive. I was a teenager when this stuff was happening. So I felt more attached to it. And I actually owned a Zune. We'll talk about that later. I want to hear about this uh, because I only had one other friend who ever had one. And I'm going to tell a story about him later as well. So we will (laughs) extinguish the people I know who had Zunes. Look, I was an Apple guy growing up. I was in the walled garden. Well, so was I, but I wasn't a chump. You know, I was willing to try something new. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So to talk about the Zune, we got to start with the iPod. So in 2001, Steve Jobs is out on stage, pulls the first iPod out of his pocket at a media event on Apple's campus in Cupertino. By the way, if you go back and watch this event, it's kind of odd because it's a very small auditorium. It's just press, it seems like. It's a very quiet, low-key event. There's no cheering, no clapping. Like, he pulls out this new iPod and is like, wow, this is the first portable MP3 player uh, that has all of these really cool capabilities. Uh, Firewire for fast data transfer, a hard drive instead of flash storage, which most other MP3 players on the market had at the time. And and the iPod was not the first MP3 player, Um, but it had this easy-to-use interface. It had a capacity of five gigs, which at the time was a ton on a spinning hard drive. And uh, it, it was basically the best MP3 player on the market even at a starting price point of $399, which sounded pretty crazy. But it was this cool piece of technology even then and was going to become revolutionary. And he announces it on stage and he's like, and this is the iPod. And then there's like, (coughs) (coughs) you just hear rumbles in the audience. It was a real different time. And it was right after 9-11. In fact, that that is rumored that that event or the you know, 9-11 pushed this event back. So yeah. it was a, sedu- a subdued time. That's true. Okay, so we got the hard drive. We have a nice user interface, but it wasn't an overnight success. It was Mac only. So think about the Mac share in 2001, not enormous, right? So it had that limitation on it. Huge limitation. Uh, but over time, over the next several years, Apple would launch the iTunes Music Store. They would launch higher capacity, cheaper models, and then bring the whole thing to Windows, which just really blew things wide open. Right. And I think where we can really agree the iPod took off was with iPod Mini, which was introduced in 2004. Uh, It was this really small form factor iPod. It was still hard drive based. It had these tiny, tiny hard drives that were really cool that actually had the same pinout as a compact flash solid state storage device, like a memory card you'd put in your camera, but it was a hard drive. Very, very cool. And um, by the fall of 2004, it was estimated that 82% of all hard drive-based portable music players in the United States being sold were iPod. So iPod kind of just dominated the market. And it wasn't until iPod Nano came around that flash-based MP3 players were feasible. So the iPod was you know, about the same price as other MP3 players, sometimes a little bit more, but it came with storage included. And other MP3 players, you'd have to buy these memory cards, which back then, you know, you'd spend a couple hundred dollars on a 
256 megabyte memory card, right? which would hold a very limited selection of songs. And the Mini was so successful. It was smaller. It came in colors, which is kind of the beginning of Apple big. playing in that realm. And it was it was a huge hit, but the iPod Nano came out really a year and a half later and replaced it. And we've got the, the this part of the keynote as a link in the show notes. Steve Jobs is like, uh, the iPod Mini is the most popular iPod. That means it's the most popular music player in the world, and we're going to replace it. And there's this great demo where... You know, he pulls it out of like the coin pocket in his jeans because yeah. it, it's <laughs> that first Nando is still feels tiny today. Sure. It, oh, it totally does. Yeah. It's it's weird to think about because it's just it. It just goes to show kind of how much in the groove Apple was. Sometimes I feel like we'll see some of their products stay on their website for a couple of years after they've been outdated or replaced or updated. And this thing was like, it's the most popular iPod. It's the best selling MP3 player in the world. We're killing it and we're replacing it with the iPod Nano. The iPod Nano was legit. It was actually my first iPod. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. My dad had owned the original iPod and then the third generation iPod and my brother owned an iPod mini, but my first iPod was iPod Nano and it was the (laughs) coolest iPod. No doubt about it. And like you said, this was uh, kind of the first time Flash became really mainstream. There was no spinning yeah. hard drive, so it could be really tiny. It boasted the same thousand songs in your pocket, but at 80% smaller size than the original iPod. I mean, it it really was just a huge jump. I, I, I remember trying to get up to the Apple Store just to see it. I wasn't going to buy one, but I just wanted to see it. And if the Mini had been a hit, the Nano was just run away. So during the holiday quarter of 2005, Apple sold more than 14 million iPods in three months. Check this, <laughs> I checked this number twice. That's bananas. Representing a staggering 207% growth year over year. Even by today's numbers, that's amazing that they moved that many units. Unreal. So you mentioned that it was uh, it was your first iPod. Mine was the third generation with like the red buttons, which a lot of people sort of laugh at. I really loved it, but probably just because it was my first one. Whoa, wait a minute. Was that the U2 version? No, 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 no. It was white with like the backlit red buttons across the top oh, before the click yeah. wheel. Sure. The, uh, the third gen. That yeah. was an amazing iPod. I loved yeah. that one. That's still my favorite because it's just different than every other iPod. I loved it. Yeah. The U2 iPods are weird. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Yeah. No, I was like, come on, don't brag about that, Steve. Yeah. That, that was like, cool. <laughs> I was in college when all this was going on because compared to you, I'm ancient and iPods were everywhere. Like, you know, I had an iPod. My college roommate had the iPod photo because it was legit and he had more money than I did. But (laughs) iPod minis. But I mean, really, the Nano in 2006, like I felt like we all went home for Christmas and we came back and everyone had an iPod Nano, just like everyone on campus. They were they were ubiquitous. It really kind of reminds me of of the Apple Watch. I mean, there are other smartwatches on the market, but Apple Watch is just the default most people think about when buying a smartwatch. And I feel like the iPod was the same for the MP3 player. You wouldn't even say, oh, I'm getting an MP3 player. You'd be like, oh, I'm getting an iPod. <laughs> it's just, it became ubiquitous with you want music in your pocket, you want an iPod. And there were other kind of portable music players back in the day. Uh, I just want to get a little sidetracked here. Do you remember iRiver? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're actually still around. And they own the hi-fi brand Astle & Kern, uh, which if you want to feel like super confused and mystified by the world, still sells multi-thousand dollar dApps or digital audio players, basically glorified modern day iPods. Anyways, iRiver was one of the first MP3 player companies before the introduction of the iPod and still, to me, stood out as one of the best non-Apple MP3 player alternatives. 
uh, well, at least until Microsoft and the Zune. Because this, as much as we want to talk about the iPod, because really, I mean, it was it was the cool MP3 player. This is this title of the episode isn't the iPod; it's the Microsoft <laughs> Zune. It's the Zune. So, so let's switch gears and talk about this. So, the Zune actually wasn't Microsoft's first foray into digital music. The company had hosted this service called MSN Music starting back in 2002, <laughs> and it operated as a digital music store of sorts for about four years starting in 2004. Uh, it launched with 1.5 million songs, but then actually shrank over time as contracts languished and the store didn't do very well and they just didn't renew deals. Um, so it sort of faded away. But MSN Music is important to the Zune story because they're completely incompatible. So MSN Music downloaded uh, WMA files, which if, if you ran Windows at the time, you know, we all remember oh, yeah. Windows Media Player and that whole ecosystem. Yep. These tracks were not compatible with the Zune line at all, even though the Zune Whoops. launched kind of within this time frame that MSN Music was still around. But MSN Music did slowly fade away, and eventually the DRM servers for playback went offline in 2011. I'm sure that upset somebody, like one person somewhere, but probably just a footnote in digital music history. Yeah, the one MSN Music guy. Yeah. Can I just say, by the way, that that is the most 2002 sounding service I've ever heard in my life. MSN <laughs> Music. Really? MSN on. Music. <laughs> That's horrible. Oh, boy. This was a stark contrast to the iTunes Music Store, which had sold 1 billion songs by February 2005 and 1.5 billion just eight months later. Whoa. In the fall of 2006, <laughs> Apple had announced that 88% of all legal U.S. music download market uh, came through iTunes, which is pretty unbelievable. I remember back the keynotes at this time where they would put up like their market share. Then I think Amazon had an empathy store and Walmart had one. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know if MSN Music ever made that chart, but it's so, I mean, just the way the iPod was dominant, I, the iTunes Music Store was dominant when it came to purchasing music. And it really was the best way to do things. I started buying music through Amazon's MP3 service early on because they were one of the first services, as memory serves, that didn't have DRM on their songs when iTunes still did. And so me as the, I'm going to buy my music, but I want to own it kind of guy, mm -hmm. uh, used Amazon MP3 all the time. But you'd buy it on the website, and then you'd have this app that you had to install on your computer oh, yeah. that would basically, it was just a download manager. It just fetched the songs. You'd log into your account. You might have even had to download like a torrent style URL. I don't know. And then it would download all your music and it just throw it in some random folder. And then you'd have to import it into iTunes. It was a disaster. And iTunes was just good. Remember when iTunes was good? I remember <laughs> iTunes? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sad. Rest in peace. It's still there in Windows. That's true. So to get to Microsoft, you have the iPod dominating the hardware, you have iTunes dominating the software. And so I guess we're in 2005, 2006. Yeah. Microsoft is putting the pieces together to take on both. So it announces what it called the Zune Connected Music and Entertainment Experience. Ooh, that's futuristic. What a Microsoft name. That's futuristic. That's, the quote experience, because it was for, quote, the youth, comprised of a couple <laughs> of things. So we had a 30 gigabyte digital music player. And we're going to talk about its features, but quickly it had a built-in FM tuner, uh, built-in Wi-Fi, and a three-inch screen for selecting music, viewing photos, and watching video. You had the Zune Marketplace music service for purchasing music, and over time they would add other content to that. And that wireless had a, a pretty cool feature where you could share select song samples, playlists, and pictures directly to another Zune, kind of like point-to-point -point networking. 
using that wireless technology. They were trying to distinguish themselves from Apple a little bit. And they, and they really did. Now, you mentioned that there was this beautiful three-inch display. It wasn't a touchscreen. Below this screen was this round, it was a little circle with another circle inside of it. It was a five-way D-pad. There were no labels on it. And this was the way that you were supposed to navigate. Uh, it was useful in the sense that you could use the device in both portrait and landscape modes because the Zoom 30 could play video. But as we'll learn in a minute, the controls were a little bit finicky. Yeah. It also came with bundled earbuds that were magnetic. This is still a cool idea. So you could easily wrap them around your device and then attach them to the player Ooh. so they wouldn't become jumbled in your pocket or turn into this big rat's nest of wires, which definitely was a problem I had with my iPod. Oh, man. I just remember like you pull your iPod out of your coat pocket. It's like I can listen to music in four minutes after <laughs> I untangle this. I did get really good at untangling wires, so that's good. Not, not so useful now in the world of AirPods, but uh, no. it's a thing we had to learn when we were younger. The original Zune 30 cost 249 bucks, and it came in three different finishes, black, white, and brown. The original Zunes had this double-shot plastic color around the edges. So like the black Zune was enclosed in blue plastic that was sort of like semi-transparent. It's kind of actually a cool look. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. The brown one had green on the outside, and of course, that's the one that everybody remembers. Stephen, I will fight anyone to the death. Brown Zune... Is still, you go back and look at it, it still looks like a beautiful device. The brown and green, I don't know what it is about it, but I I love the brown zoom. Oh boy. <laughs> you can find Quinn on Twitter, just talk to him directly. If you guys want to get into the chat, I'll throw down on you. This is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful looking device and looks good all these years later. Now, the Zune was a little chunky, and it was heavier than the fifth-generation iPod on sale at the time, but it had a larger display and offered similar playback to the iPod. Funny enough, in a small nod to Apple's Designed in California thing they do, the back of every Zune included a very small engraving that said, Hello, from Seattle. Oh, Microsoft. They're trying. Microsoft. What are you doing? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Disagreements about color aside, the Zune hardware did offer features just not found on the iPod, right? The iPod at this point, we're talking about the fifth gen iPod. Right. So it was improved from initial models, but a lot of this stuff was, you know, Microsoft brought to the table for the first time. But the ecosystem around it, so talking about that combination of iPod and iTunes, that fell short with the Zune and the Zune marketplace. The software in the Zune was a big departure from Microsoft's previous attempts at mobile operating systems. But it betrayed the Zune's origins in a way as it was a refactored Toshiba player. And so the software was not really unlike what was found on some of the company's other media players. And compared to the iPod, it was this more colorful, more energetic user interface named Twist. And it used album artwork to generate effects in lists and on the on-playing screen, which was something that actually came to the iPod at a later date. It was fun, it was different, but it came at the expense of usability. Uh, reviewers praised the D-pad for being way faster to navigate menus than the click wheel, but it did get diffusing, uh, confusing in places. More on that in a minute. On the Windows side of things, Microsoft supplied software to sync media to the Zune over USB. It did things like automatically finding album artwork when media was imported, but 
for some reason, at sizes smaller than the width of the Zune screen. So album artwork it found <laughs> for you would be a little blurry. Oh, that's terrible. This was cool, but Apple had beat them to the punch with iTunes 7, which had been released a few months earlier. Mm. Uh, remember when like finding artwork was a big deal? I mean, now we stream, so it's all just built in. But I remember like scouring Google Images for the, oh, a, yeah. the big, biggest version I could find and dropping it into iTunes. What a, what a time to be alive. Oh, yeah. There were apps dedicated to finding artwork for iTunes and metadata in general, and they were mm-hmm. not cheap. I remember paying for a very expensive shareware program that worked. I don't even remember what it was called, but it was like a planet on fire. It was like Saturn hmm. was the logo of the app, and it, it worked really well. But iTunes kind of ended up copying a lot of this functionality. But yeah, for a while, yeah. the Zune kind of did a good job of finding metadata for you. Uh, playlists in the Zune software were also easily created, but many complained that the user interface for the store was clunky and slow, something that iTunes was very much not. At this point, at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's right. The Zune software also could be used as a, a media hub of sorts for your local network. You could send a media to the Xbox 360, to other computers, and this grew over time. Zune, as we'll see, kind of became a media brand for Microsoft. And there's this, re- there's this really wild story to help make the media deals possible, so to get music into the marketplace. Right. Microsoft cut a deal with Universal Music that meant that the record giant got a fee for every Zune sold. <laughs> Just like the iPod, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by 2006, the music industry had been worked over pretty hard by Apple, and Universal wasn't that interested in a repeat performance. Yeah, about a year before the Zune launched, uh, Warner Music Group CEO Edgar Bronfman said that if Apple was going to keep selling songs all at 99 cents each, labels were entitled to a share in the iPod revenue stream. Uh, That didn't quite pan out, although Apple did make a change to iTunes Music Store in 2009, selling some of its most downloaded songs for $1.29 a piece. They also, at the same time, and we always forget this because it never became a thing, offered a $0.69 tier as well. And so some music that was published not through major labels was $0.69, and that's really what Apple talked about on stage. They didn't say, hey, all our songs are going to get $0.30 more expensive. (laughs) They said some of the premium popular songs will become $1.29, and some other songs will move down to $0.70. But basically what this meant was that all songs over the next couple of years would move to $1.29. Yeah, I don't remember seeing many $0.70 songs in iTunes. Because we're talking about old hardware, I feel like date issues come up a lot. We talked about it with the Newton last time. Yeah. It was called Z2K by some people. Mm. Uh, But there was an issue at midnight Pacific time on December 31st, 2008. There was a software driver written by Freescale Semiconductor. They built the processor at the heart of the Zune 30. And there's an issue with this driver because 2008 was a leap year and it would basically Uh make the devices... Uh, lock up and not be responsive. <laughs> the official fix uh, was to drain the device's battery and then recharge it sometime on or after January 1st, 2009, <laughs> which is like a huge dodge bullet, right? That they didn't have to have a firmware update or some sort of patch that it was just... Just let it die. You'll be a little confused, but just charge it up. And then it's probably going to be fine after that. Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, that could have been way worse for them. Right? <laughs> it could have been really it bad. really could have. really could have. Uh, So let's get into the reception of the Zune, but first, let me tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Hello. 
Hello, make insanely comfortable buckwheat pillows. I don't know if you've ever tried one, but it's actually really different from like regular fluffy pillows because buckwheat pillows support your head and neck. They don't collapse under the weight of your head like traditional pillows, and they stay cool and dry compared to other types. Because it breathes better, so you don't get all warm and humid. You know, sometimes in the summer, you like flip the pillow over to the cool side. Both sides are cool with the buckwheat pillow. You're not having to do that in the middle of the night. And you can adjust its height or thickness because you can add or remove filling to suit your needs. So you can make your pillow just the way that you want it. Hmm. People have been sleeping on these for years. They're very popular in places like Japan. And they also appear on pillow menus at fancy hotels. Now, Quinn, I believe you've got one of these. How has your experience been? I love my Hello. It's very comfortable. It breathes really nicely. And whilst I have never been to a hotel with a pillow menu, that's my goal, though, in life, to, to get to a place where they'll ask you for a, a pillow. Hello is made in the U.S. of A. with quality construction and materials. They use certified organic cotton in their cases. They're sewn for durability. And buckwheat is grown and milled here in the United States. So here's the deal. If you're curious to try one, you can sleep on it for 60 nights. And then if hello isn't for you, you can send it back for a refund. Head on over to hellopillow.com slash flashback right now to get your own buckwheat pillow. That's H-U-L-L-O pillow.com slash flashback. If you buy more than one, they have a special discount for up to $20 off, depending on the size you opt for. Hello offers fast, free shipping with every order, and 1% of all their profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy, which is pretty cool. So give it a try. If you love it, you keep it. If you don't, send it back. Head on over to hellopillow.com slash flashback right now. Our thanks to Hello for the support of this show and Relay FM. All right, Stephen. So I think we really need to get into the reception of the Zune once it finally hit the market and got into reviewers' hands, because there's no doubt about it. It was a huge success and ended up killing the iPod. Uh, no, wait. Um, wait, have you hit your head? Are you okay? <laughs> hold on now. We can go back in time and verify my findings by reading some old reviews of old tech products, which is always fun. Uh, at Engadget, Ryan Block wrote about how confusing. Unfortunately, the user interface and D-pad could be on Zune as its controls work differently if a user was in the menu system or on the now playing screen. He says, in the twist interface, you move from list to list by moving left to right and vice versa. In the player interface, left and right represent track forward and reverse, and holding represents fast forward and rewind, which makes sense. Sure. To switch to another player view or to access the player menu screen, you press the center button. We often found ourselves going to the next or previous track after hitting left or right as our thumbs attempted to instruct the player to show the menu or current track list. It got to the point where we were unnerved to actually hit left or right for fear of skipping the song we were listening to. If your user is scared to push a button for fear of what might happen, that's bad UI design. End quote. Rough. <laughs> that, is, that is not good. No. Over at the New York Times, Michael Marriott wrote uh, about the player's wireless technology. Uh, so this is a quote. But the Zune can do something that no other players, including the iPod from Apple, can claim. It can locate other Zune players and wirelessly exchange content, music, and picture for starters with a few touches of a big shiny button. The question is whether the Zune's singular innovation, the wireless sharing feature, is enough to distinguish it. And Marriott goes on to quote Sean Wargo, from a director of industry analysis for the Consumer Electronics Association, who said that it was a big draw for consumers generally, 
uh, at the extent of a player's library of content and how easy it is to add and manage content from the device, that those were big draws for the consumer. The biggest diss is that he called it the Zune's singular innovation. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's a sick burn. Yeah. James Kim at CNET chimed in as well by saying, This sharing feature allows users to share music and photos, but not video, within the same room, albeit with limitations that some of us already know. Three plays of a song within three days. That's not that big of a deal. At least you can try it, see if you like it. You know what I mean? Yeah, a little sample, and the DRM comes and yeah. kicks you into kicks the ground. Into, yeah. He then goes on to say, shared photo files, on the other hand, have no limitations. We'd love to see the Wi-Fi expanded so that one could sync or purchase music wirelessly, or even see Zunes across the globe. It's weird to think that that wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. You had to plug everything in. But having played with the device, I see why Microsoft is starting small. So far, the Zune experience out of the box and beyond has been predictable and solid. Wi-Fi or not, it's one excellent media player. He was a fanboy. In the pocket of Big Zoom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just kidding. I'm sure James Kim wrote an objective review. Don't don't email me, James. I'm sorry, James. Mm. And lastly, Nate Anderson over at Ars Technica raised the issue of going up against the juggernaut iPod. Nate writes, So much attention is spent on gorgeous packaging, but the player locks up in less than 10 seconds of use. That raises questions. <laughs> He had a, a rough experience. That's not good. That's not good. To unseat a player like the iPod and convince users to ditch any tracks they might own, Microsoft needs to hit a home run on launch day. At best, they knock down a long double off the wall. That's pretty good, but not when you're down by six in the eighth inning. This isn't to say the Zune is not a cool product. It is. But much of its potential coolness, in quotes, uh, if you're looking for an attractive player with a great screen and a fine interface, the Zune is worth a look. If you want a device that makes it simple to watch and share viral video clips, swap music, and put its Wi-Fi to good use, the Zune may disappoint. We do believe that the Zune has potential, but not enough to score it higher than a 7. There are simply too many problems right now. Hey, a 7's a pretty good grade as far as I'm concerned. There was one other problem with the Zune, and it wasn't that big of a problem ultimately, but it's that it wasn't compatible with Macs when it launched, requiring either Windows 2000, oh my goodness, or Windows XP. Eventually, Microsoft changed this in 2011 with the Zune HD bringing a Mac app, but more on that device later. I would think the bigger issue than Mac support is support for iTunes DRM music, right? Like it, you can't play in that ecosystem. And yeah. if you have somebody... Like I, I was, I've been thinking and prepping for this. Who was the Zune for? Because by 2006, a lot of people had iPods. It would have been easier to go f to the Zune as your first media player. But if you had a bunch of music you had purchased through iTunes, yeah, the Zune was sort of off limits to you because you couldn't bring that music with you, right? The content created the ecosystem lock-in that that Apple and other companies crave so much. And so, you know, maybe that hurt it too. That it was just a. Uh, um, a little too late, but we'll get into maybe more of why we think it failed. But I keep coming back to that in my mind. No, and it really speaks to how lucky, I guess we should say, that we are in modern day. Obviously, we mostly stream stuff, but by and large, when you purchase music now, and even to an extent video, DRM is not so much of a thing as it used to be. Because at the end of the day, the, the only thing that DRM really hurt was the consumers that were actually purchasing music legally. Anyone who wanted to, to pirate stuff illegally would get around DRM anyway. Right. And so <laughs> it, it really goes to show that at the expense of convenience and living an easy life, DRM made things difficult. But to Apple's advantage, it did lock people into the iPod ecosystem really, really strongly. And a, kind of an early example of ecosystem lock-in. You know, we talk about that in the smartphone days, but this is well before that. Yeah. 
Okay, so the Zune uh, eventually some siblings that happens. Microsoft's product designers love each other very much. Eventually, mm. more little baby Zunes come along. Don't like that. In November 2007, the main Zune was refreshed, expanding from a single 30 gigabyte player uh, to multiple devices. So up first, we have the Zune 80. This is the flagship of this second generation launch. It was thinner and lighter than the original device. Despite the increase in storage and the inclusion of a larger 3.2-inch display. How much storage was in the Zune 80? I'm going to go with 80 gigabytes. Mm, That's probably a pretty good guess. Good naming. Battery life was also improved from the first generation Zune, primarily due to Microsoft reducing the refresh rate on the screen from 60 hertz to 30 hertz, which kind of sounds like a bit of a downgrade in user experience, but (laughs) whatever. Improved battery. We call that uh, pulling a Pixel 4. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. The D-pad, which everyone had come to love, just kidding, was replaced by the Zune Pad. Zune Pad. Yeah, this was a 24-millimeter touch-sensitive squircle. Perfect. You know what a squircle is? It's a square with rounded edges. Yeah. And this touch-sensitive kind of surface simulated up, down, left, right, and center buttons. And in addition to scrolling, users could flick their fingers up or down for accelerated scrolling. I don't know if you've used a Zune Squircle, It was actually really, really good. And at the time, I thought it was better than the iPod's click wheel. It was definitely faster. You know, at some point, Apple added the quick scrolling that if you kind of scrolled, then you could skip to the alphabet quickly. But if you had a big music library, you were like zipping around your click wheel a lot. And this, the flicking deal, just like what we have on smartphones now, like sort of the flick quickly and it scrolls and then you put your finger down, it stops. Like this is a great move in big media libraries. The new industrial design... I meant that the the end of the double shot color found on the original devices, much to Quinn's sadness. No brown. But if you look at pictures, this Zune looks cleaner. It looks sleeker. It's more mature. It looks like a better put together product. It doesn't come in brown. I don't care. I'm sorry. The firmware for these new media players included a revised user interface that was cleaner and more responsive. And music could now be purchased on device over Wi-Fi Ooh. rather than having to sync through the Zoom client on your computer, which was good news as the Zoom marketplace uh, was still clunky on Windows and lacked Mac support entirely. Something that you know came along with the iPod Touch, but the regular iPods never got the ability to buy music on the device. (laughs) Clear after the existence of the iPhone and the iPod Touch, you still couldn't buy music directly from the Nano. The Zune 80 was not the only Zune for the second generation. Uh, The Zune 4, 6, and 16, again, the names came for the capacities. Like, that is a really good naming scheme. good idea. Yeah. So easy. So the Zune 4, 6, and 16, they were a series of Flash-based players designed to take on the popular iPod Nano. They started at 79 bucks and went for as much as 159 for the 16-gigabyte model. Uh, So these were less expensive than the $249 Zune 80, kind of opening the market up to more people. Yeah, these smaller Zunes, the 4, 6, and 16, all used a 1.8-inch color screen. They also included Wi-Fi and an FM radio, just like their larger sibling did. And they could also play back photos and videos, even though Microsoft wasn't selling TV shows or movies in the Zune marketplace at this time. So you'd have to acquire those videos from elsewhere. Home videos. That's what it is. Home videos. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Definitely nothing else. Just those. Definitely not the season of The Office that fell off the back of the truck. Not that. Right, right. You you used handbrake, ripped your DVD that you got off of Amazon. (laughs) In September of 2008, Microsoft released the Zune 120, again, increasing the capacity. And just a few, this was just a few months after the company had announced it surpassed 2 million Zunes sold. That's a lot of Zunes. It is a lot of Zunes, but 
Apple was selling 3.5 million iPods a month at this point. So oh. <laughs> awkward. So they were still <laughs> a little bit behind is what you're saying. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, too bad. Well, in 2009, and this is where I start to really care about the Zune, Microsoft announced the Zune HD. It was designed to take on the iPod Touch. It sported a 3.3-inch OLED touchscreen. It had this beautiful industrial design. It was built out of aluminum, and it came in both black and platinum finishes. But other colors did come out over time as well. What about brown? Did brown come out? The brown did not come out. I don't know why Microsoft hates me. Over the course <laughs> of the Zune HD's life, it was offered in 16, 32, and 64 gig capacity. So obviously, it was flash-based. And it was very tiny. It was much smaller than the iPod Touch. And I owned a Zune HD. And believe it or not, it was the first OLED display that I ever saw in real life. You go back and look at it now, and the colors are weird and washed out, and it has this horrible pentile-looking matrix grid, but it still is an OLED. And you can look at it in the dark, and it still looks beautiful and futuristic. It was incredible. And the hardware, at least to me, felt vastly more premium than something like the iPod Touch, which had that horrible, glossy metal surface on the back. Who ever thought that was a good idea, by the way? Yeah, Apple used raw stainless steel for way too long. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> Even if you put it in a case, I would be super, super worried about scratching it. I put it in a case the day I got it, and crap would still get inside in between the case and the iPod, and you would scratch your iPod with debris that had gotten jammed in between your iPod and your case. It was horrible. And the Zoom just got rid of that whole idea by going brushed metal from day one. And it looked really nice. It had raw screws that were visible on the device, which was kind of, I don't know, cyberpunk in a way. It looked futuristic and industrial and raw, but it was very pretty. It's like Elon Musk designed an iPod. Yeah. Can you tell I like the Zune HD? <laughs> you seem enthusiastic about it. Reading through reviews and looking at pictures, like it did look good. And um, that OLED screen comes to back in play when we talk about the interface in a second. Previous Zunes had supported games, but the HD, as you would imagine, took things to a whole new level with that big screen. Right. Well, it's HD. Well, the screen wasn't, but, you know. It was in the name, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. By its cancellation, over 60 apps have been written for the platform. That is nothing, but... Wow, 60, that's impressive. But then, for a, a portable media player, you know, nothing to shake a stick at. I guess so. The Zune HD also had a built-in web browser and had apps for integrating with Facebook and Twitter. Uh, they don't work anymore, by the way. I've tried recently. Uh, the device did not support Adobe Flash, like the iPhone and the iPod, but it did have gesture support for pinch to zoom, among others. But perhaps the most notable feature of the Zune HD was its redesigned interface. And it was kind of a pre-runner to what would be known as the Metro design language. Tell me a little bit about it, Stephen. What was, what was cool about this interface? I love Metro design language. So do I. I still do. And the Zune mm. HD, at least, black background. So that OLED screen really looked good. Because with OLED, if it's black, the pixels are off. So it's deep, deep black. So did. The design system relied on simple icons, really large text, minimal window chrome. If you ever saw Windows Phone 7, you know, or maybe early versions of Windows 8, the Xbox in this time, they all inherited this over the years. But it started here, which I think is really cool. And in a way, I still think this looks like really futuristic in a way that iOS and Android just don't. It does. We're going to have to talk about Windows Phone 7 too in a future episode. Uh, because I loved it and still do. So maybe, wait, Stephen, maybe I'm a Microsoft fanboy. 
<laughs> Windows Phone. Uh, Windows Phone did have one thing that I still miss to this day on my iPhone, and that is that it had the best predictive keyboard of any smartphone keyboard I have ever used. I went back and used the Windows Phone, the most recent Windows Phone, in 2008. It had been two years old at this point, and Windows Phone is horrible. It is dead. Nothing works. It's awful. But the keyboard was still fantastic. And going back to my iPhone felt like a huge downgrade. I wish they would make it for other platforms because I would use it in a heartbeat. Oh, it's good. I'm going to put a, a link to your video about that in the show Perfect. notes. Back on topic. People can go see a, <laughs> a young Quinn using Windows Phone. The, a more handsome Quinn. Well, oh, come on. Uh, you know, well, what do you do? Interestingly, Metro was not actually the name of this. It seemed to be like an internal code name. There's this weird story that in 2012... Microsoft had to send out an internal memo saying the term should be discontinued. I mean, it seems obvious to me that there was some sort of trademark issue mm-hmm. somewhere and they didn't want to fight it. So instead of it calling it Metro, Microsoft called it, hold, hold on to something, the Microsoft Design Language. <laughs> That's Ooh. wonderful. <laughs> Great name. It was also called Modern Design, especially in the sort of Windows world for a little while. But man, Metro is a good name. I want to give a shout out to Metro. That's what I've always called it, and I'm not going to stop now. I don't care if it's called Microsoft Design Language. It's Metro. Sorry, Microsoft. (laughs) Uh, Like you had mentioned earlier, because it was one of the first hyper-flat, text-focused user interfaces, it's something that was done so well that I think a lot of the reason why our user interfaces look the way they do today can attribute their origins back to Metro. I mean, you look, and you mentioned this, at the iPhone and the iPod in 2009, Apple had just released iOS 3. And it wasn't until iOS 7 in 2013 that we saw Apple abandon skeuomorphism in favor of a flat design that I think, even at iOS 7 stages, still didn't look as good as Metro released in 2009. I totally agree. I mean, really hats off to the team that put Metro together. Who would have thought Microsoft of all companies? I know. (laughs) This episode of Flashback is also brought to you by Backblaze, the unlimited cloud backup for Macs and PCs that starts at just $6 a month with no gimmicks and no add-ons. In college, I had a real data disaster. I lost a MacBook Pro to some water damage, and I didn't have a lot of those files backed up. And as a result, I'm missing a lot of work from high school and college that I really wish I had. Look, this Mac Pro... Drive is not going to fill itself. I wish I had that data. And Backblaze could have totally saved my bacon, but I wasn't running a backup. And I don't want to ever be in that situation again, so I use Backblaze on all of my computers. Backblaze backs up documents, music, photos, videos, drawings, projects, everything that's important to you. Backblaze has backed up over 900 petabytes and counting. That's 900 million gigabytes These guys simply know their stuff. And if you do have a data disaster, Backblaze can ship you a hard drive with all of your files on it. And once you've restored your precious documents, you simply mail the drive back for a full refund. Look, you got to back up your stuff. Go to backblaze.com slash flashback for your fully featured 15-day free trial and let them know you heard about Backblaze here on Flashback. That's backblaze.com slash flashback. That's very hard to say, but you should do it today. Our thanks to Backblaze for saving us from countless day disasters for their support of this show and Relay FM. 
Something else that Zune helped bring into the world was the idea of music subscription services. Zune Music Pass was a service that cost $9.99 a month and allowed users to download. So it's not streaming, but you're downloading an unlimited number of songs for playback on three Windows PCs, as well as up to three Zune devices. Now, these songs couldn't be burned to CD. They were protected Windows media files that DRM on them. (laughs) But this is pretty early on for a service like this. Well, that makes sense. I mean, Zune Pass was eventually offered in a number of countries, the United States, the UK, France, Italy, Spain, Canada, Australia, you know, you could utilize the Zune media platform, such as the marketplace where you could buy songs more broadly, but the streaming service, it was kind of restricted to those countries. And then TV shows were even more restricted, just being available to those in the United States and Canada. And then the Zune podcast system which this doesn't make any sense, by the way, because it's not like podcasts have weird licensing issues. The Zune podcasts were only available in the United States. I have no idea why that. I mean... No, I get it. It's because all podcasts are in English and they only speak English in America, right? USA. No, okay. (laughs) Wrong show. Right. (laughs) I, I had a friend of mine who was super into the Zune HD was super into Music Pass. I remember being in his apartment and him telling me this, and I'd be like, oh, who would want to subscribe to music? You know, and now I pay for Apple Music for an entire family. <laughs> My buddy was ahead of the curve, but then he was also super into mini discs, so maybe well, not. What's your point? I failed to see how that's in any way invalidates. <laughs> you were a mini disc guy too, weren't you? <laughs> I wasn't. I unfortunately was, uh, was a little too far out of my budget. Uh, Zoom Pass was actually available from the launch of the original Zoom, or it was a software update brought a couple months later. It was it was 2006 though, which is kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. Uh, iTunes and the iPod was focused on ownership of your music and control of your digital library. And that was cool, you know, owning your songs just in digital form. Streaming services were largely unpopular, I think, until Spotify really took the world by storm. And one thing that I liked about Zune Pass, and yes, I was a subscriber, not for a super long time, but I did subscribe for a while, uh, was that it had an initial subscription price of $14.99 per month. I think it was lower to $9.99 after. But as part of that $15 a month price tag, that came with 10 songs that at the end of the month you were allowed to select to purchase and you owned them. They were yours. That was your Hmm. music license. So even if you canceled your Zune Pass, you could still keep your music. And in a way, I think that's pretty cool. And I would actually like for that to come back because there was just something fun about managing a library and knowing the music, you know, stored on your hard drive was yours. It was no different from a CD in your CD chest. I I don't know. I I love streaming. It's convenient and all that other stuff. But we are kind of tied to the system. You stop paying for it and everything's gone. Yeah, I, I remember I spent a lot of time when I was younger, like, carefully curating my iTunes library, really caring about every single thing in it. And that's sort of gone now. You just add an album to your collection and you just start streaming it. So are you telling me that your untitled artist section on your iPod was not huge? I don't think I had any, man. I was was really like really uptight about this. Untitled Artist was my most downloaded artist in uh, on my iPod. <laughs> they had way more albums than anyone else. <laughs> yeah. Very prolific, that person. Right, right. The, you know, the Zoom did a lot of stuff well, right? It had all these features we talked about. It brought a lot to the category for the first time. It just didn't do enough with those things. And it really entered the market too late. And I think there's two factors to that. One, the iPod and the, and, you know, the iPod Touch, they were selling like crazy. And the writing was on the wall for dedicated music players. If you, if you think about when this came out, it was basically right before the iPhone and right before Android and a couple of years before things like WebOS. Yeah. And smartphones just ate alive the dedicated MP3 player market, right? Some people held onto them for a while, but now they're 
all basically gone. Yeah. Microsoft ended up announcing that it would discontinue production of Zune hardware in March 2011. But at this point, it had been a couple of years since they had updated it. So it sort of died on the vine, just, just like the iPods did, honestly. And that's the hardware side. The software side was even crazier. So the Zune desktop app started to languish once Microsoft determined or decided that, you know, this wasn't the future. Attention moved elsewhere, and the bones of the Zune Music Pass was shifted to a service called Xbox Music Pass. And then eventually, Groove Music Pass. Are you keeping track here? Um, I have a, a flowchart. Hang on. <laughs> right. Which released alongside Windows 10 in 2015, at which point the Zune app was formally discontinued. But then Groove Music Pass, which was the one that came from Xbox Music Pass, which came from Zune Music Pass. This is very simple. Got it. Was discontinued in 2017. And the iOS and Android Groove Music apps ceased to function in 2018. So... This gets a little more confusing because Groove Music is actually actually still an app in Windows 10. You can open it right now, but it's basically a glorified media player and any traces of what once was the life of Zune is now pretty much permanently removed. Oh, that is really confusing. <laughs> oh, it's rough. We spoke about the the fan base of the Newton we did. Our, in our last episode and how people continue to use it and do all these things with it. You know, the Zune HD is kind of the same way. I think it's probably smaller than the Newton community, but... It is, yeah. There's still a number of clever things that Zune fans have uh, worked out over the years. So uh, at the heart of the Zune was the first-gen NVIDIA Tegra chipset. And they severely limited the power of that chipset that was made accessible to third-party developers. And that's kind of one reason while it had 60 apps, it didn't have 600 or 6,000 apps. It was faster, basically, <laughs> than Microsoft let it run. Uh, maybe that was for power issues. I mean, who knows, yeah, right? Most certainly. The XNA Zune development platform didn't allow for 3D rendering. Apps didn't have internet access. That clock speed really hurt them. And the third-party app scene was kind of rough. And it's too bad because Microsoft's own first-party apps did tap into the power of the Tegra processor. And so you had Microsoft's official apps, which were the Facebook and the Twitter app, which were really, really good. And then all of the other apps completely sucked. <laughs> and I think it's probably the re part of the reason why developers were like, no, I'm not spending time on this. Beyond the small market share, their development platform was a nightmare. It's kind of like the... Um in the early days of the iPhone where Apple could write apps and everyone else was stuck with <laughs> web apps. Yep, yep, that's exactly that. So uh, the community came up with OpenZDK, which was a, a new platform developed by users at Zune boards that removed its restrictions and a whole bunch of fun ports and custom apps came in. Doom for Zune, which is just fun to say. Yeah, and of course, I mean, everything runs Doom, right? Everything. <laughs> I think I could run Doom on like the like the entertainment system in my car if I wanted to. <laughs> you really probably could. There was a Nintendo Game Boy Color emulator and an NES emulator, so you can get your Mario on. Okay. There was an app that allowed you to turn your Zune HD into a remote control for your PC over the Wi-Fi network. Ooh, that's a really small screen. Don't know if I'd want to do that, but cool. <laughs> All right. It's there. And a uh, IRC client and a whole lot more. So like this community kind of breathe life into this platform that Microsoft had strangled. They really have. If you go and check out these communities today, they've, they've really mellowed out over the last few years. I think people's Zune fever has died down a little bit. You only see posts once or twice per year on the Zune boards forum, but there's a Zune subreddit with 3,500 members and there are still nearly daily posts. <laughs> and wow. What this leads me to believe is that many people still love and use their Zune, or at the very least, still love their Zune. 
this is something that you might not be aware of. And, and one of the reasons why I actually owned a Zune HD, because I bought my Zune HD after I had already purchased an iPhone. So I had an iPhone in my pocket. It was capable of playing music. It even had a headphone jack, which is kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> it was it was a, it was a decent music player. It was fast, but I owned and used a Zune HD, and I worked with Zune's awful, awful software on the Mac. Which, if you think iTunes on a Windows PC is bad, you haven't used the Zune software on a Mac. But I put up with all the shenanigans because the Zune HD was praised by audiophiles. It used this very high resolution Wolfson DAC digital to analog converter and headphone amplifier that put iPod Touch and iPhone, quite frankly, to shame. And there are still many devices that I try out today that have worse sounding audio than my Zune HD from 2009. In fact, it was a recommendation that I saw on Hi-Fi forums all of the time until just a few years ago with the proliferation of more high-resolution digital audio players from companies like iRiver, which I mentioned earlier, finally dethroning the Zune, mostly in part to the fact that they run Android. And so you can use streaming service apps directly on those devices at a much higher quality. There's a website, Zune Update, which has all of this desktop software available to download, as well as a number of firmware versions for flashing and restoring old Zune hardware if you're interested in such a thing. But more interesting to me, there's an archive of all of the old Zune artwork, which shipped on the Zune devices themselves. And I don't know if you've looked at this, Stephen, but it is gorgeous artwork. And I would still love to use this on a modern smartphone. If we got like an artist to scale these up to HD, I would totally use them as a wallpaper. And I think that they still look fantastic and modern by 2020 standards. Yeah, they look really cool. They're really neat. So what can we learn from the story of the Zune? Uh... Don't make a music player after <laughs> Apple's already done it. Don't do anything after <laughs> Apple's already done it. <laughs> I mean, that, that's sort of the headline here, right? Of yeah. if the mighty Microsoft couldn't go up against Apple in this market. I mean, so much of technology is duopoly, right? Where you've got right. two companies battling it out. But there are parts of the market where one company has a huge lead over the others, right? If you think about Android and iOS, Android is way bigger than iOS globally, and there's not really room for a third smartphone OS. Like, I'm sorry, WebOS <sighs> fans, but there just there just isn't. And Don't do that to me, Stephen. This sort of showed that there wasn't room for even a second big, successful music player. There really wasn't. And, wild. And the timing was just horrible. Sorry, Microsoft, but it was bad. February 2006 was already too late into this market. Now, had Microsoft released the Zune HD in 2006 instead of the original Zune, maybe we'd be talking because that was something that was far more comparable in terms of feature set and processing power and uh, user input to what eventually became the iPhone and the iPod Touch. But then again, if, if Microsoft had figured that out a year and a half ahead of Apple, maybe we wouldn't have iPhones in our pocket <laughs> and we'd be rocking Nokia-based Windows phone devices. Oh boy, that would be something. I'm really glad it worked out on in Apple's favor. <laughs> Me too. And I think there's something, too, to just learn about Microsoft's strategy in mobile, right? You mentioned Windows Phone 7. Microsoft was so busy with this, they were late to the game there, too. We know how that story ended as well. And so I think there's a lesson about not only timing, but priority. And when you're losing something, like sometimes the answer is to cut bait and move on to the next thing and, and not get stuck like half a cycle behind like Microsoft really was really for like 10 years with this stuff. It really is fascinating, and it just goes to show that, you know, A, technology is hard, <laughs> and B, the first person to do it well takes the cake, and it's really hard to compete after that. The Zune is long gone, but remembered in the hearts of many, well, not many, in the hearts of few. Some. 
I don't even think some <laughs> is an accurate is an accurate descriptor. Uh, even the brown one, maybe that one holds a special place in people's hearts. It holds a special place in my heart, that's for sure. <laughs> if you want to read a lot more about the Zune players and their ecosystem and all this stuff, we have a whole bunch of links for you. They're in the show notes. You can view them in your podcast player, or you can head over to the website at relay.fm slash flashback slash two. Uh, all that stuff will be there. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up, or if you have uh, a suggestion, we have a long list of tech products, but we want to hear what you want to hear too. So let us know. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as ISMH, and you can find my work at 512pixels.net. Quinn, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at SnazzyQ and really any social media network at SnazzyQ and on YouTube at youtube.com slash snazzy. I'd like to thank Hello for sponsoring this episode. And until our next time together, Quinn, say goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Adios.